and you're listening to Thinking Off Piste, a podcast for adventurers. We share inspiring stories from professional mountaineers, skiers, boarders, bikers, climbers and hikers who have gone against the grain, abandoned their comfort zone and found success through their dare-to-be-different attitude. Thinking Off Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass. Today I'm talking with the outdoor adventurer and teacher Bridget McClarty. In 2013, Bridget embarked upon a month-long ski traverse from Whistler to the Hamathco Valley. Her other adventures include studying elephants in Botswana, instructing scuba diving in the Philippines, rock climbing in the Southwest Desert and rafting in the Grand Canyon. So Bridget, in 2013, you completed a month-long traverse from Whistler to the Hamathco Valley in BC, and the expedition was called Traverse the Coast. What inspired you to do Traverse the Coast? Uh, well, actually, uh, there was a vote in 2001. There was a group of adventurers who skied the entire coast mountain range from Vancouver to Skagway, Alaska. And a couple of them actually continued on uh, to Mount Logan. Um, so Lena Rowett and a bunch of other people were part of that. They were just total legends. So mm-hmm. in 2013... Um, a woman in Alaska, she's a total powerhouse. She wanted to do the same trip. And so it was her plan. And she convinced uh, two other friends to join her. And then I was able to get six weeks off work. So I was able to join them for a portion of the trip as well. Amazing. How long was their overall journey? They had anticipated to go for six months um, and uh, they ended up going for, I think, four or five. They did not complete the trip, but uh, but that was the initial plan. Amazing. Um, Tell me about your preparations. Like, how did you sort of physically, mentally prepare yourself to go on this trip? (laughs) Well, um, I was I was teaching full-time in Vancouver at the time. And so in terms of um, gear and food, we just had this enormous portion of my small apartment just became this huge storage facility. (laughs) And so there was gear and there was food. The dehydrators were constantly going, always always dehydrating um, meals. We didn't do any of the prepackaged stuff. So it was all home home meals that were were dry. Gosh, that's so much better for you. Yeah. And it, it took a lot of planning, a lot of effort, as you can imagine. But um, to be honest, it was actually pretty funny because I, uh, I was I was bike commuting every day, you know, to and from. But it was at sea level, and uh, it was about forty five minutes each way. But that was about all the training I had done for this trip, and it definitely uh, turned out to be a, a poor plan. Oh, <laughs> what do you have to do to prepare your food yourself? Like, what's the process of dehydrating it? Oh, it's really easy. Yeah, I, I, am, I have a couple of uh, food dehydrators. And so basically I would make a meal like uh, a chili or a curry or whatnot. And then uh, I would just lay it out on the trays and then turn it on and let it go overnight until it was dried. And then um, I would take about um, one dried cup. So about 250 milligrams of um, food that would be one dinner for one person for one meal. And then um, when we would be in the field, when we'd be on the trip, we would just boil water and or just heat it up with the uh, water. And that's, that's actually it. quite like a straightforward process. Not bad. 
Oh, it's great. And you know what's going into it and it's healthy and uh, volume was a, a big effort. And so we actually brought ghee, um, which is like a butter. And so we put that in almost like every every breakfast, every dinner had a lot of extra calories and I've never been able to eat ghee again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet you're sick of it now. Um, what about the trip were you most excited for? Oh, I just saw it as being such an adventure, such a trip of a lifetime, you know, and I grew up on the northern coast of British Columbia. Um, and so the coast mountain range extends from where I live um, in Squamish all the way up to Alaska and the Yukon. And so I had lived in a number of these different places and I had lived in the Yukon for a while. And I just thought that um, what a, I've traveled and I've lived in a lot of different places in the world. And every time I come back to the coast mountains, which uh, is my home, it's not just the mountains, it's not just the forest, it's not just the ocean, it's all of it combined. And I love these mountains so much. And so the opportunity to spend um, a month on skis, which is my favorite yeah. way to travel, to <laughs> yeah. spend a month on skis and to go the farthest I've ever been self-propelled too. I, I basically went from my front door and walked for a month in the, in the glaciers and it was amazing. How much ground were you covering each day? Like how many hours or how long are you exercising for each day? Oh, this is, it was, yeah, it was all day. Like we would probably be up at about 7 a.m. and having breakfast. And then we would we would travel till about uh, maybe about five. And then, but keep in mind, like I was, I was there during the month of March. And so the days were getting longer, but they certainly weren't long. But <laughs> that first week, that first 10 days, it, it was it was so hard, Becky. Like it, I, I had about half my body weight in my pack, so about sixty five pounds. So I'm not sure how many kilos that is. Maybe about thirty five kilos. Wow. And ten days worth of food and mountaineering gear, and we'd go about twelve kilometers, and our elevation gain would be about fifteen hundred meters. And so, I, I was I was dead. I was completely totally exhausted. It must have been the strongest you've ever been in your life as well. By the end. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other three people who were on the trip, they had already been traveling for two weeks um, um, from Vancouver to Whistler. And so, and one of them was a varsity trained endurance athlete. One of them is a professional ski patroller. And another one is a mountain guide from Mount Denali who guides people up the mountain every year. And so they were just finely tuned adventure athletes by that point. And I was, you know, I was age 39 and I was about nine or 10 years older than each of them. And so trying to keep up to them every day was, it was really hard that first 10 days. I imagine that was quite good motivation though, because you know, like if the general energy of the group is like quite up pace and positive, then you kind of push yourself to do it, like maybe more so than you would have done otherwise. Was there like an element of that to it? Um, I think, <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think eventually, uh, I mean, honestly, for the first while, like all I could do, it was all I could do to get to the tent and crawl into bed. Like I didn't even want to cook uh, oh, or wow. eat at the end of the day. I was so done. And I yeah. think that I had this image of us like skiing beside each other and chatting and having fun where the reality was I could barely keep them. I was following tracks and I was barely able to keep somebody in my sight. All Gosh, day. it sounds so, like such hard work. <laughs> yeah, and mentally, it was. Um, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here? Why did I think that I would be able to do this? And so, uh, the first ten days were hard. And yeah. can, can I tell you? Can I tell you about my escape 
plan? Please do. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> so at one point of a few days in, we were in this remote area and uh, it just happened that a friend of mine was filming. He had a helicopter and they were doing some um, Hollywood movie and they were filming on a glacier. And I saw him and I gave him a hug and it was all I could do not to ask him to beg him to take me back home oh, to Whistler. <laughs> and then we kept going. And this one day, it was it was so hard. And, and we had just picked up 10 days worth of food at a cache. And so the packs were heavier. It had been raining for days. Everything was wet. We were trying to get to this particular cabin, this backcountry cabin. And we were going to stay there for a night. And I knew it. I had spent time there before. And... Um, I, it, was, it was to the point where it was so hard and it was just, it, we were trying to get to this cabin. And so we kept going in the dark. And so it was 10 o'clock at night. We're trying to get across this, this tiny little sketchy snow bridge across the Creek and it's 10 o'clock and it's, everything's wet and it's so heavy. And I got to the point where I was starting to count my steps. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking a break and then, okay, have a little pep talk. Good job, Bridget. <laughs> go another 10 steps. So go another 10 steps. And then I have to stop and I have to take a break. It was, you know, oh it, my was, God it was bless. That, that sounds really hard work. You need a lot of mental strength in moments like that. Yeah. Well, well the thing was though, I had this carrot in my mind. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to go to that cabin and I'm going to stay there. I'm going to eat my food and then I'll rest and then I'll walk out and I'm going home to Whistler. I'll hitchhike home. And I had this all day. That was the thing that was going to get me through. And the really funny thing was as soon when we got to the cabin and we slept and we dried out and we had food and I realized, okay, this is my opportunity. And that's when I realized I want to keep going. Yeah, I'm, I'm not leaving. This is this is it. I've done so much work to get here. And that was the turning point. I'm like, this is after that. It was awesome. It's funny how we play like we like mentally play tricks on ourselves. We're like, no, it's fine. You just got to go a bit further and then you'll be there and then it's cozy. And then you're like, I don't actually want to leave. This is great. Um, that's really funny. Did you 100%. take any? Yeah. Did you take any sort of rest days in the process or were you constantly moving just to enjoy the surroundings? No, there was none of that. No, we had a very specific amount of food and it was tightly controlled. And so any day that we weren't moving, we weren't eating. And so, which basically means you just drink tea and sleep because it's too hard because you're always hungry. Like we'd go to bed hungry. We'd finish dinner hungry. We'd wake up in the morning hungry. So you're always hungry. Because like you said, like I certainly got in the best shape of my life for sure. But you just were always just hungry all the time. And, and imagine that when you're always outside, which is essentially what we were, we were always outside. Your body is always burning calories. Even if you're just standing still, even when you're sleeping, you're burning lots of calories. So, yeah, we were we, we were definitely stronger and uh, in the best shape ever, for sure. Did you ever sort of like, obviously you're rationing your food supplies. Were you able to stay stocked or did you have to like restock along the way? Um, did you schedule stopping points for that? Yeah, so we carried a lot of food, but um, there were, um, I think on my section, there was either one or two places where we we picked up food. So we were carrying about 10 days worth of food at a time, which um, when you're thinking, when you see each little Ziploc bag of, of dinner and you're like, oh, that's not very, that doesn't weigh very much. But when you have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned online that you had a forced stay at a series of hot springs and huts due to a pineapple express weather cycle. What exactly is a Pineapple Express weather cycle? 
Oh, in, in this area, um, a lot of our weather, well, a pineapple express, we, we call it that because it's coming down from, or coming up from Hawaii. And so there's, it's basically this really warm, very wet um, system that comes through. And what it looks like on the ground is it's a lot of rain. And so it, 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 when you see the satellite photos, you're like, ooh, that looks terrible. <laughs> so it was a lot of wet, warm weather coming up from Hawaii. And so what that meant is that it just poured. And there were um, a couple of days where we, we knew, like, obviously we had planned the route. And so there were, because, because we're in this wonderful uh, geographic area where there's, you know, uh, volcanoes and hot springs and earthquakes and all that sort of good stuff that we, there are a number of hot springs along the way. So we did stop and, uh, and stay at a couple of huts, which was a nice reprieve. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, how temperamental was the weather on your trip, like with the, the winds and so forth? Were they pretty powerful? In this section, I didn't know. Um, the, well, the first, like I said, the first 10 days, it was just everything was so, I just can't, I keep coming back to it because it was so hard. But honestly, once we left that cabin and we got back up onto the glacier, um, they said afterwards that it was almost like I had cherry picked the best weather of the whole trip because after that it was, it, it was bluebird and um, fantastic. And just actually so, um, there was so much sun that first of all, it was great because we charged our, our phones and our every, all our electronics using solar power. But I'm um, I, I have Celtic coloring, and I ha- I zinc my face every day, and I had a nose protector, and I had the the, the um, glacier glasses, and a hat, and and everything. And even with all of that, I was still I ended up getting some blisters on oh, my yes. face, and I ended up having to wear like a, a buff over my nose. Because it was just, there was just so much light. There was so much sun. Wow. And uh, we had to keep covered because of the, the sun. But it was pretty spectacular that way. Easy travel that way. So can you describe the hot springs? Like, were you able to bath in them? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because uh, one of the sets of hot springs, uh, it, it's, it's received a lot of uh, attention in Whistler in the last few years. And so um, it's not quite as nice as it is, as it was then, but at the time it was, it was spectacular. This one particular hot spring ha- is right beside the Creek, the river. And um, uh, there are stone um, uh, pools that have been created. And this one particular one is back from the river and it's it's gorgeous. It's so deep. This pool that this person has created out of rocks and, and mortar, I'm assuming, um, you can actually be up to your neck in it. And there's even a tap. They put taps hot and cold <laughs> That's and awesome. drained so that you can drain it out and it doesn't get all filled with algae. Little yeah, it, it's stuff. quite amazing. Yeah. And it looks like there's a little plaque and it looks like it was dedicated to his wife, which was really sweet. And did you cross many other travelers or how much like human interaction did you have with others along the journey? None. No, there, apart from meeting our friend who was, uh, and it was completely random that we met him on a, on a photo shoot, on a film shoot. Apart from that, we, uh, we, didn't, we didn't see anybody. We saw some s- snowmobile tracks at one point on one of the glaciers but yeah there's there was nobody else around we just saw and in fact for most of it was interesting because we would go up it wasn't just traveling on glacier because we would go up to the glaciers and then we would have to go back down to the valley bottom which meant for a long ski but if you 
which is sounds lovely, except when you're carrying such heavy packs, it's it, it's it's really hard <laughs> on the legs. And then you'd have to go all the way back up again. But I found that whenever we'd go down to the valley bottom and there were trees and there was running water and it just felt warmer and it was almost like this 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 unperceptible stress that we hadn't really been aware of was sort of lifted. It's like, oh, I can smell things again. Because <laughs> when you're on the glacier, there's yeah. no smell, there's no birds, there's no, there were wolverine tracks. That was it. That's amazing. You were out in such like extreme conditions, unencumbered by man-made structures and systems, and you were constantly surrounded by beautiful wilderness. What sense of perspective did you gain from being immersed into such extreme nature? Did it, did it give you clarity or what kind of occupied your thoughts in those moments? Oh, it was, it was huge. Yeah. The, the, like I said before, being in a place where it was the farthest I'd ever ventured of my own power was one thing. And then also just the, because we were essentially, we were traveling together, but we were separated during the day. I, I was basically traveling by myself. And so, and I didn't have any, you know, I, I wasn't listening to podcasts or music or anything. And I just, it just became so meditative, just the motion, you know, every day, all day. And you just become so immersed in the presence, in the present. And it, it really does um, allow for the space to, to grow and have this sense of awe. I just found that, you know, coming up, there's one particular moment where it was near the end of my section of the trip. And I knew I was going to be going home soon. And we just came up to this this glacier and this peak and and in every direction, in every single direction, all you could see were peaks upon peaks upon peaks. And this this young, amazing coast mountain range is just so jagged and 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 raw. And some of the peaks they would you know how you when you look at clouds you see things at the peaks I would see like flames and it looked like something from Lord of the Rings. Wow. It was just so these and they were just snow covered it was like these white waves these crests of waves in every direction and I was so filled with yeah it was it was so it was awe-inspiring and then I looked down and my favorite animal is the wolverine and I looked down and I saw these wolverine (laughs) tracks and they just went straight up straight over and kept going not even a break you know just straight up and I'm like I am I'm so humbled you know I have this huge pack and this animal has nothing and just makes it happen god it's almost like someone like painted that for you just like the placement of the animal in the beautiful landscapes was that the sort of Masco ice cap that um region there gorgeous what would you yeah. like um compare that experience to like what would you like in the experience to oh I you know what? I think I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And I, I think that, you know, if I had taken, if I had taken a helicopter and I had come to that particular spot, I'm not sure if this is answering your question, but I should think if you, if you took a helicopter and you could land on that spot, you know, you could stand there and you could see the same views and you could see the, the Wolverine tracks, you would still have that sense of awe, right? There's, it's not diminished, but the the feeling the process of getting there of actually you know working hard and having that slow travel and that intimacy of knowing that mountain like i came up onto that glacier and i i know what it what it feels like and what it looks like and what it what it smells like and and having that sort of understanding that comes from actually 
journeying there on your own, I think that it 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 adds to the sense of sounds awe, amazing. If, if yeah. that make, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that if you, yeah, and I, I think that when you when you go to places like that, like when I think that in terms of the going back to your question about what it's like in every day, I, I think it's just when you know that you've worked so hard, you've tried so hard and you've, you've, you've put in the effort and you've been present and you've been mindful and you, it, it's like having that, all of those positive emotions of like, this is amazing. And I'm so relieved and I didn't die. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And it's, it's so beautiful and it just, your heart is just exploding. I, I think that many of us who have been in the mountains have had those experiences and it's just, it, it's, to me, it's spiritual, really. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, can you describe uh, like the wildlife you saw too? What else did you see? For me, it was the Wolverine tracks. And I mean, I used to, before I became a, before I was a teacher and a, a university instructor, I, I was a wildlife biologist. And so part of my work involved um, tracking, I would be on skis. This is in the Rocky Mountains in Banff National Park. I would be on skis and I would track wolves. And so the wolves would go in one direction and I would find the tracks and then I would go in the opposite direction. So it wasn't like I was chasing them or anything, but I love, I mean, I grew up in snow and I love snow so much. I love everything about it. And so when I see the tracks in the snow, it's, it's exciting because there's a story. And if you pay attention, that's how you find out what's going on. And so, you know, it's like this other sense, it's a sense of history, like who's been here. And so for me on this trip, like I said, there's, there wasn't very much wildlife when we we're up on the glacier. I mean, there's no, there are no plants, you know, there, yeah. there's nothing for the animals to eat. And so we rarely saw on the glacier, we rarely saw anything except for tracks. And I, I love that. I mean, that's I've, pretty cool. I, yeah. Yeah. And in previous, I guess the, 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 the cabin that I was describing, when I had been there in the past, they're very close by. There had been a time where I had seen all these wolf tracks and I was really excited. It has been a long time since I'd tracked wolves and I poked around and poked around and I knew that there was something that they had killed just given the tracks and given the signs. And I found that in the um, edge of the river on the ice on the river, there's shelf ice. Sometimes like the river will rise and it'll freeze and then you'll end up getting these the space below it, there was a, a moose calf that had fallen through oh. the the ice, and which I mean, yes, it's sad for the moose, but it was so cool because the wolves had taken <laughs> it and they found it and they ate it, and there were tracks everywhere. And they, I mean, you know, when you they give a dog a bone, so and excited, it goes, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that stuff. It's just like playing CSI. <laughs> what kind of tracks? Can you like tell me about how you identified this? Like, what did you look for? Yeah, so like wolf tracks, um, uh, so, you know, they, they look like a big dog, basically. Um, and uh, a cougar track is really similar, except that it has, uh, it doesn't have its claws showing, you know, like it's just, um, and it's a little bit more rounded, but sometimes yeah. they look very, very similar. Yeah. And then wolverine tracks are really cool because they have five toes, whereas wolves and cougars have four toes showing. So they have five toes and they're really big and they have this crazy sort of <laughs> lope and so their their pattern of their track is quite interesting and actually it's funny because the photo in my background um was taken at Blackcomb Mountain in, near Whistler and um I saw on a day like the one that was shown there I saw a wolverine in broad daylight running right across this bench right right behind right, right outside of the boundary of the the park basically or the uh cool. ski resort <laughs> 
Yeah, so it, cool. there's no mistaking it. They're they're so they're so badass. They're just amazing animals. Have you had any? Have you ever had like a dangerous encounter with wildlife or Mother Nature in general, either on this trip or outside the trip? Certainly not on this trip. No, there was there was there was no real wildlife, no notable wildlife. Um, I, uh, when I was doing wildlife research, I also, um, uh, during the winters, I would track the wolves and during the summers I would, um, uh, track grizzly bears. And so I have been around in, in grizzly bear country quite a bit. Um, also in the Yukon, I wouldn't say that I ever felt threatened by a bear, but I've certainly been unexpectedly quite close, uh, to a grizzly. At one point I was trying to, I had a, I was in Banff Park and I had my dog in the car and the door was open and I was using radio telemetry. So I had an antenna and it was pointed in the wrong direction. And the animals I was um, tracking had a radio collar and I was looking for this grizzly bear and I'm, I'm, the, the, the signals were bouncing off the mountains and there was all sorts of stuff going on. And I was pointing in this direction and all of a sudden I heard my dog growl and I turned around and the grizzly was about four meters away from me. And I'm like, Oh my God. The car, slam the door. Oh, thanks. So thank you. Fun. Thank you. Thank you for telling me. And also your dog would have no idea. Like he would just start barking or probably scare the, uh, the bear surely. Or are they more intuitive than that? She was a pretty special dog. She had been living wild for a while. She's a little bit feral. And so she, if it was a black bear, <laughs> she would run after it and send it up a tree. But ah. with grizzly bears, she just would growl. She knew the difference. I heard that if you encounter a black bear and a brown bear, you should do opposing things. So for one, you have to play dead and the other one playing dead is like a mistake. Do you know if that's true? It's, it's, a, really common, it's a really common misconception. Um, the, I always think about like if you see a bear, doesn't matter what kind it is. If you see a bear, um, watch what's going on. Try to get the context, you know. Um, uh, it's almost like when you encounter like a really aggressive dog, you know, like you, you want to sort of have that same sort of perspective. And so with a, uh, it, it, so for example, if there's a big pile of meat, if there is an animal that they killed, they're not leaving, right? This is like them winning the lottery. They are not leaving. <laughs> and so you need to go. And if there's our cubs, similarly, they, you know, the mother is going to be protecting the cubs. And yeah. so you need to go. But um, if, say, for example, there was this story in um, Banff where this, uh, this couple, they happened to be British. This is not part of the story, but they, they um, had reported to the um, uh, information uh, the visitor information center that they had seen this bear and usually there's always reports about bears and people and so they asked a lot of questions like to make sure it wasn't a dog or, or anything else and so it was definitely sounded like a black bear and they said well what was the behavior and the couple said well it was crouched down and looking at us directly and coming towards us on the ground I don't know that you can sort of tell yeah. what I'm doing here, but it's, it's it, you know, it's like crouching down and, and approaching, stalking yeah. basically is what they were describing and making direct eye contact. And so the visitor information center was quite alarmed. And they're like, oh, that's, that's too bad. What was it, you know, how close did it get? And they said, well, it got pretty close because we kept hitting it in the nose with our umbrella. Wow. That was and really so close. That was really close. And so that's what they've described there was this black bear who was stalking them. It was a predatory oh black God. bear. And so it's not normal, right? That's not, that's, yeah. it does happen. And so if a bear is stalking you, it, it, if you play dead, it's going to eat you. Yeah. <laughs> so don't you're do just, that. You're falling into its hands, really. 
Right, exactly. So you really have to put it in context. If you've surprised the bear and it just wants to understand that the threat has been um, uh, mitigated, then yeah, playing dead. But it, there is a lot. There's a lot to be. There's a really great book called. Um, well, it's called Bear Attacks, but it, um, there was a, um, a supervisor of mine, a former supervisor of mine who wrote it years ago, and he had analyzed all of the bear attacks documented in North America, black and brown bears, and it found that basically being proactive is the best thing. Letting the bear know that you're there is the best thing, and there have never been any documented attacks by a bear in groups of six or more. Oh, that's so, cool. That's interesting, bigger, actually, yeah. Bigger groups and let them know you're there. Power in numbers. We um we actually spoke to a Whistler-based triathlete who encountered a moose once on one of his journeys. Um, I think it was protect. I think it was a female, so it was a cow, and she was protecting her young. Uh, but it seemed really agitated, and he had no idea what to do. What would you have suggested to him in that situation? I think <laughs> I haven't experienced that, but I have been in area. I have seen moose, and I have been around moose, but. I would say trying to make the mother know that you're not a threat and basically back away and talk quietly. Sometimes the talking quietly is, is almost for us to make us feel more calm, <laughs> but I don't know whether it actually makes the moose feel more calm, yeah. but, um, but backing away quietly and just letting it know that you're not threatening, like certainly not yeah. trying to get big and scary towards it. That's really interesting. Um, what part of your day did you grow to love the most about your journey in the Traverse? I think that when I would start off in the morning, it always felt like my legs were quite heavy and it was hard, you know, and it took a while to warm up. But getting in the groove, and I'd say probably, uh, especially when we were traveling, especially when there was easy travel, that sounds like a, an obvious thing to stay, say, but um, the, the going down and the going up was really hard, but there were some beautiful, amazing sections where we just, uh, we were just going it, it was just beautiful travel and every direction the whole day. I just felt like my mouth was hanging open because it was so spectacular. Mm, yeah. Was there mm -hmm. anything that really took you off guard or like that you didn't anticipate happening and couldn't have prepared for along the journey? I, I mean, I keep coming back to it, but I really didn't think that I, I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. <laughs> I don't know whether I would have done it if I had really known that at all. But I think that um, I, I just had a, uh, I, I, I realized a number of different things. And one of them was that I really learned how to accept my, my role. So on this particular trip, I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. You know, I didn't have the most experience. I certainly had a lot of those things. But I think that it made me realize that my role on the trip was to make it light. You know, I, I was the one who, who brought the little tiny, you know, birthday cake for somebody on the trip, <laughs> kept oh, it in my pack sweet. until it was ready. Yeah. Or, or I brought treats for St. Patrick's Day and I told corny jokes and I tried to make things easier for the rest of the group. You know, I knew that that was kind of keeps role. the morale up. Yeah. Yeah. And so I became more comfortable, I think, with that role as well. And I think that, um, I think that I really learned my ability uh, to tolerate adversity and how how important that was. Um, I have a, can I tell you just a little story about yeah. an experience? So when I was um, working on wolves, there was, it was about, it was a long time ago, like 15 years ago. Uh, and I was in this 
had these, I had to train a group of three who wanted to learn how to track wolves. And we had really long days traveling in the backcountry in the Rockies. And we, each night we would stay at a different cabin. Um, it was, it was a park cabin. We were allowed to stay there. And one night in December, so the days were really short and I could not find this cabin. We had never been there. I'd never been there before. Um, and I had the map, but it was, we couldn't find the cabin and it had been a really long day because somebody else had lost one of the maps. Both there were two, there were three other people I was with and two of the guys had fallen in the river that oh, day. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was cold. It was, you yeah. know, minus 20 and it was just, we, it was so hard and I was starting to get worried because we couldn't find this cabin. It wasn't where it was on the map. That's and actually really I, stressful. I, yeah. Exactly. And I was in charge. Right. And, 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 and I had, so there was this one fellow who was this tall, huge uh, monster of a man um, named Freck, who was from, um, I think he was, I think he was from the Netherlands. And then there was uh, Terry, who was a snowboarder who didn't like having a female boss. And then there was uh, uh, another woman, a, a woman who was really loved wolves. They were her spirit animal. And so it was quite a different <laughs> eclectic group yeah. and she was crying and 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 the and terry was angry and and i was looking for a tree well you know for a place for us to huddle down overnight and <laughs> freck stood up and he's like this is why i came to canada is to have an adventure like this <laughs> and i was like this is amazing like it's how so funny. awesome and it's so long ago but i still remember just like yes you're right it's all about the attitude and just yeah. being able to tolerate that sort of discomfort. Throw yourself in it. into it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is an adventure. You're right. That's what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, you mentioned your background as a wildlife biologist. Um, who inspired you to, to sort of get into wildlife biology? Do you have any role models in the field of work? Yeah, I, I guess like a, a lot of people will will find their they they love being in the outdoors, and so they end up um, finding work that allows them to be in the outdoors. And for me, I really wanted to work with animals, and that's how I ended up getting my backcountry skills and using a map and compass and and GPSing and binoculars and all that stuff was from the work that I wanted. To, and so I really wanted to be with animals. And so I there was a time when I was in um, university, and I just remember it was my first day, and it was a huge class of 350 students and it was an ecology class and this man walks this professor walks into the uh, the bottom and of the, uh, the lecture hall and said you know you know this is who I am and I've spent the last 30 years studying large animals in Africa in the Serengeti and in Australia and in the Canadian Arctic and I'm like that's what I want to do yeah. so <laughs> he, he ended up being my uh, my honor supervisor I love that mm -hmm. amazing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, over the past year, humans have had sort of a less of a presence outdoors, industry slowed down and so forth. With this in mind, do you think COVID has had much of an impact on wildlife? Yeah, I would, I would say that actually it depends on where in the world you are. Like I understand, you know, I've seen the dolphins in Venice and all that, or I've heard about them um, being back and that's really lovely. I think that in some places in the world though, it's been different. So for example, um, I live in Squamish and um, there's a large, the large city of Vancouver nearby where there's nothing going on in terms of theater, parties, yeah. festivals, music events, that sort of thing. And so what we've found in this area is actually there have been way more people in the back country than uh, any other yeah, interesting. year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been huge. And actually 
a lot of people had expressed some concern at the beginning of this ski season because with, you know, they put restrictions on the ski hills. And so they haven't closed completely, but at Whistler, for example, um, they've really limited. You have to have reservations to go there. And so a lot of people have decided that instead of um, putting money into a ski pass, they decided to invest in backcountry gear and they don't necessarily have the experience. They don't necessarily have so much of the training and there's a lot of people. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's actually going to backfire in a way. Yeah. I think one of my favorite stories that stemmed from lockdown was about, I'm not sure if you heard about it actually, because it was over here, but there were some wild goats who sort of evaded a Welsh town because all the residents were staying at home because of COVID and it was really good. So they had like branched out, they like realized that there was nobody in like these areas and were like, oh, we can go hang out in the streets now. So there were like loads of goats in the towns, which were really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that you're right that they're in a lot of like worldwide, there probably has been a lot of that, but I, I think there are some local, like here, for example, there's been some localized uh, quite a switch uh it's not quite that way what advice would you give to someone who wants to go out on their first backcountry trip get the education first yeah. of all you definitely want to you <laughs> definitely want to have an avalanche skills course you know and 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 recognize the fact that you know anybody you're going with um you have this sometimes unspoken contract if you're going to avalanche terrain you are trusting your life with the people with whom you travel and then, and vice versa. And yeah. so, except, you know, that, that sounds pretty heavy for a backcountry ski day, but, you know, just recognize the fact that if something goes wrong, you're the person who's got to get them. So make sure you have the gear and make sure you've got the training and the understanding. What's one thing that we can all change about our day-to-day life to be more mindful of the environment, do you reckon, that we take for granted or don't think about? I think that we've really got to nurture a... Uh, a sense of connection to nature. And I think that the way to do that is to actually spend time and it doesn't necessarily mean mean you have to go on a, a month long trip or anything like that, but even just to find small places that small pockets of nature, and this is fine during COVID too, you know, just a park and just to really be open to being odd, you know, like, wow, how huge is this tree? What <laughs> what would the world have looked like when that tree was my age? You know, what yeah. what's going on for that that squirrel living in that tree? You know, and it, it might be just going down to a river or a creek and watching for the the insects and the invertebrates and the and the fish and just allowing ourselves to have those pockets where we can allow ourselves to be present and to be amazed by how awesome this world is. And I think that I really believe that having those opportunities and taking those moments will inspire us to make changes and to have that gratitude for where we live. That's really inspiring, actually. Yeah. I wanted to touch actually on your teaching. Um, In 2019, you began sort of graduate work at the University of British Columbia, and you were researching into how to incorporate experiential learning into outdoor education, which I feel like links quite well with what you just said. Um, Do you think topics such as like climate change and environmental issues are sufficiently addressed in current school curriculums in general, or do you think there needs to be more of a push towards it? 
Yeah, and so actually, my my research is is really getting into the um, it, it's in outdoor education, but um, specifically about what it means to have a connection to nature. But in terms of your question about the curriculum, um, I can only really speak to the curriculum in British Columbia. Yeah, fair because enough. that's the uh, jurisdiction where I teach. But I think that. It, it recently, in the last few years, it changed and it, it's much more concept-based and much more open to um, the I, big ideas as opposed to content. It's more being able to think critically and, and encouraging students to think um, creatively and, and to collaborate with each other. And and so I think that there is a lot more opportunity for that. And um Teacher, teachers are smart and they're resourceful and yeah. they really, there's a lot of passion in, in, and um, drive to, to help this generation become more conscious and, and, and better citizens really. And so I, I think that I have a, I have a lot of faith in the, in the educators. And um, I know that given, given the freedom that this new curriculum has provided, I think that there are a lot of opportunities for, for teachers to bring that into the classroom and to help their students gain a better understanding. Good. Excellent. Um, and you've been teaching for the past decade. As part of your syllabus, um, you've taken your students on sort of 25 day experiential science trips to Vancouver Island, uh, which has involved things like caving and intertidal and forestry studies, kayaking and scuba diving. Can you tell me about some of these experiences here and what you research with your students on the trips? Sure. Yeah, I, I've been I've been teaching since about 2003. And so that was that section that you're talking about those trips. It was a uh, part of a really amazing experiential program in the Yukon, um, which also uses um, BC curriculum. But we I would take the students, it was a grade 11 class, and I would teach them for one semester. So for five months, I was their only teacher. So I taught them um, chemistry, biology, um, geography, field studies, visual arts and phys ed, physical education. And so there's, there are amazing educational opportunities in the Yukon. And so I would drive the bus and I had 16 students and I had one uh, male chaperone and we would do these amazing trips and we would take the, we would drive and, and along the way, basically every single day I had planned, you know, from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m., um, what we were going to do. And I had cold called scientists along the way who, you know, in, in advance that to meet with us, you know, we had a, a sockeye salmon biologist in waders showing us them spawning in the river at one point. <laughs> cool. And we're driving through this spectacular area on the Stuart Cassiar highway and, and pointing out all the different geographic um, features, you know, in the mountains and, um, yeah, I would I would take them to different universities because they're grade 11s and so they would want to be going to university in uh, in the next few years and we're thinking down that road and yeah, scuba diving. I mean, they were learning the chemistry, right, because the uh, the gas laws, but also um, the curriculum at the time was all about basically marine biology and so, you know, it's so different when you're talking about Nidarians and uh, and echinoderms in a classroom in a landlocked place versus this Actually, is what yeah. it is. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> this is a flatworm, you know, and, and it's just learning experientially. So many of those students, there were times when we would be, we had this super low tide. We timed it so that we would be down um, at the, the shoreline on the beach when the tide was 
very, very low. And I would have students, I took photos of them digging through the mud at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, the different quadrants and trying to get the different <laughs> levels and finding that and sifting through to find the different invertebrates. Like they were just, you're just it's so, so much more fun when you can physically engage with it and you're physically there as well. It just brings yes. a whole nother dimension to it. It makes it more real. And they'll never forget it. They will yeah. never forget that learning. You know, I had a student at the end of the trip and we were at a, a, an aquarium in Alaska and they were, he, they were naming all the different species and all the different, and they were noticing it all. And, and he suddenly looks to me and he said, how do, how do I know all this stuff? You've never given us a test. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> Eureka. I also wanted to touch on some of your other personal adventures because you've got a really impressive repertoire between like park rafting, working as a guide and backpacking expeditions, ski traversing, bike packing. Can I ask you about radio collaring elephants? I realise you did this in Botswana. What's the goal in doing this? Oh, yeah. Oh, this is, uh, I guess it was 2001 I was there and there was, um, because I had had the experience of working in, um, in Canada and um, I wanted, well, my dream, I had a huge dream about wanting to work in Africa on wildlife. And so in the um, four months before I started my education degree, I had contacted a number of biologists who were working in Southern Africa. And I told them that I was willing to come over and volunteer my time and, and uh, expertise in helping. And so this one particular project, I didn't work on it for very long, but um, it was in a place called Kasani up in uh, Botswana. And this herd of elephants um, in this particular area, it was near fairly close to Victoria Falls. And so there's Zambia, Zimbabwe, Namibia, and Botswana, and they all come together. You know, their borders all come together, this one particular area. And this herd of elephants um, basically went throughout the countries. You know, they would travel through, but nobody really knew where they went. And so this fellow, um, I think he was starting his PhD at the time. And so he wanted to find out more. And um, I have this photograph. I, I don't have it with me, but I have this photograph at one point where I was standing um, holding the radio collar. It was around me. I had my hands over my head <laughs> and it was touching the ground and the, the radio, the the, the battery itself was about the size of a car battery. It was quite big. And so it, these animals, they're, they're huge. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they had to um, be anesthetized. And so it was quite a production. There was a helicopter. Wow. There was a veterinarian who had a, uh, a, a gun that had the, the dart that yeah. um, could anesthetize the animal. And then we had to push the animal over and monitor it, its condition while it was anesthetized to make sure that it was still... What's okay. the benefit of doing it, like uh, radio coloring them? The idea is that, I mean, with radio coloring animals, the idea is that they are, um, you're able, especially with an animal that travels in a group, like for an elephant or a wolf in a wolf pack, um, you're able to get a sense about where the animals travel. And so that's the whole idea is that you, you're able to find out where they go and just to get that baseline like data. migration pattern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's quite invasive and I know that there's a lot less of that being done um, because it is, you know, it's a, it's a real, whenever, you, whenever it's like when you go to surgery, if you are under a general anesthetic, right, there's always danger. And so same, that's basically what's happening with the animals when they're radio colored. So there is, there's a lot of risk. Okay. And so um, people are looking for less invasive ways of, of finding out information about animals now. 
But then in doing the, that as a process can in some ways benefit for the quality of their lives? Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. And in that particular area, it was um, that region, it was very important for the governments because in each, you know, whenever the animals would travel across the borders, you know, there were, there were no fences keeping restraining the animals and keeping them in one country. And so um, they certainly having intergovernmental um, conservation policy was really important in that particular region for sure. Cool. Um, and a few years ago, you're a guest speaker at Whistler Museum for a talk called Group Dynamics in the Wild. Um, and you raised some really interesting points in relation to sort of avalanche conditions and trusting your intuition. How important is it to be attuned to the surroundings you're in while in potentially dangerous, hostile environments? It's it's the most important thing, for sure. And the uh, I teach avalanche um, skills courses and one of the things that we keep coming back to is the fact that um, the group dynamics, the, the human factor is so, it, it's so integral and it's so, so much a part of making decisions. And there's this balance, you know, there's this desire to explore or to get fresh tracks or to, to go somewhere new. And it's got to be balanced by understanding about where you're at, what's going on with the group. Um, is there this sense of familiarity? Is there wanting to be accepted by the rest of the group? You know, is there, oh, this, this person is the expert. They know what they're doing. Um, is there a sense, you know, so, there's so many stories where people say, I felt like it was a bad idea, but I didn't say anything. And that's <laughs> such a common, yeah. um, such a common reflection, you know? And, and the thing about, especially with Avalanche is, is that there's never anything that will tell you that this is a safe slope. You know, it's like a, it's like a hypothesis. You can always disprove it, but you can't actually prove it. And so there's no silver bullet that's going to tell you that, yep, it's good to go. And, you know, tracks are not signs of intelligent life. You know, even if somebody else skied, it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to ski. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. And certainly, um, I think the, the intuition, and uh, there's a, there's a lot of, from my perspective, there's a lot of evolution that has gone into our intuition. Sometimes it's kind of mysterious, but um, I think that the, for me, the most important thing is to to have that sense of self and also to be with people who with whom you trust and you can communicate. What are some of the signs that you can look out for um, to, as like red flags or warnings in conditions like that to maybe call it and say, maybe it's not a good time to go up now? You mean like for for avalanche conditions? Yeah. There's there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into there's a lot of uh, a lot of courses and a lot of online resources uh, for that. Um, but certainly um, having an understanding of the snowpack and paying attention to it over the course of the season um, is a big one. And um, paying attention to like understanding. And reading between the reading the fine print, you know, for example, there was a time in um, on December twenty eighth in this area where, you know, the forecast was for um, it was moderate, moderate low. So Alpine was moderate, and, and which seems pretty good. You know, it, it doesn't seem that um, worrisome. However, reading the fine print, um, you could see there were the details involved. You know that. Although it's you know there could be human triggered avalanches and you know, it, there might be few avalanches that will be quite large. And so that was what 
I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but that was basically what that meant. And that day, there ended up being a number of major incidents like involving avalanches and people, right? And so uh, having that having that background, having that education and that experience and the awareness of what it actually means. It's really important. Amazing. Um, That's really good advice. Can I quickly link back around to skiing whilst we're on the topic? Um, What's the best piece of gear you wouldn't go ski touring without? After like the 10 essentials and my my transceiver and and probe and and shovel, (laughs) I'd say one of my favorite pieces of gear would be um, ski straps. I love nice. ski straps. They're <laughs> useful for everything. You know, the big, the long rubber ones. That yeah. Can, oh, they're so, so amazing. I take them on every trip. Ski straps, but I'll take them, I'll take them pack rafting. I take them backpacking, climbing everywhere. I they're love so them. so resourceful. <laughs> What's the best backcountry meal you've ever had? Oh, well, okay. So you mean like, as in self-propelled backcountry meal? Like it's like dried and have to yeah. be reconstituted? Yeah. Um, it wasn't really a far trip, but I'd say that, um, some sort of pad thai was really great just because it had all the little extras, (laughs) (laughs) you're just adding the little, you know, crushed nuts and all that. It's it's not something I would do for a 10 day trip, but I certainly, I, I certainly, I certainly love it. And if it's not, if it's a winter trip where it's not an extended trip, I really loved canned smoked oysters just everything Ooh. about it the flavor the Very the, nice. the, the fat <laughs> the, the calories um and what's where's your favorite place to ski or the fav- your favorite place you've ever skied you know i i really love i mean i think it's obvious that i really love the coast mountains i have such a i have such a love affair with them and i'd have to say um I, I really do love uh, skiing near Whistler and Blackcomb in the backcountry, and just the just the access and the beauty and um, the variety of terrain and uh, and the Duffy Lakes area um, near Pemberton has really the snow is so dry and and gorgeous. But I also I also <laughs> really love Roger I also really love Rogers Pass too. So that that's pretty amazing. So I don't know it, it, <laughs> those three areas. Yeah. Um, and finally, is there anything else on your bucket list that you haven't ticked off yet? You know, it, it, it's funny. I, well, my first thing is to finish my thesis in June. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I think that I, I really think that COVID has given such an opportunity because I'm starting to realize how much I love linking areas that I know. And, and so, you know, for example, I've, I've spent nine or 10 days in the last few years um, in the spring going on and there's something about being able to, you know, ski the glaciers of a, of a particular river, the, wa- the mouth, the headwaters of a particular river, and then later to paddle that river and then to hike and climb in, in the view of that river and to really get to know that watershed. And I just feel really privileged um, to be living in such a beautiful area where I can play like that in my backyard. I just love the feeling of growing intimacy with this area, you know, yeah, just learning to so know and love it. Freedom when you're like ex- surrounded by that is such a, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous there. And it's knowing that it's in your backyard, you know, and to know it's moods and seasons. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to give a shout out to before we wrap up? I think, well, I, I guess uh, I'm just really um, happy and privileged to be 
to be living in the uh, traditional and unceded area territories of the Squamish nation. And uh, I also feel very fortunate because I've been teaching at the outdoor recreation program at Capilano University. And it's just it, the, the, the instructors and the students and the landscape are so inspiring. And so I feel uh, very, very, very grateful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Bridget. You've been an absolute pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much, Becky. Thanks for inviting me. It was a pleasure speaking with you too. Thinking of Piste is brought to you by Maybe Ski, a Whistler-based adventure ski company creating bucketless ski trips across the globe. If you're looking to get off the beaten track and away from the crowds, head over to maybeski.com to discover what lies beyond your lift pass.